Hello everyone, and welcome to Game Cola Podcast number 22. I'm your host, Paul Franzen, the editor-in-chief of GameCola.net. Tonight's podcast is made up of two discrete segments that were recorded at two uh, completely separate times. In the first segment, Gamer Girlfriend comes to the Game Cola Podcast as Mike and Vanjie go deep into exploring the profound emotional responses they've had while playing games like Earthbound and Valkyria Chronicles. And in the second segment, myself and Michael Gray have an in-depth discussion of Case 4 of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, a case perhaps most famous for a scene in which the lead character intensely interrogates a parrot. It makes for a weirdly disjointed podcast, but at the very least, there should be something for everyone, whether you're the sort of person who bursts into tears at the thought of a sick baby dolphin, or whether you... Uh, like the Phoenix Wright games. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to the Game Cola podcast for what is a very special edition of Gamer Girlfriend in Stereo. Oh, 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 oh. For this particular version of Gamer Girlfriend, I will be joined by my wonderful fiancé, Mike Ridgway. Hi. Who is not my boyfriend anymore. He is my fiancé, but... As previously mentioned on the website, we have decided to keep the title of the column the same as is because it just doesn't have the same ring to it without the gamer girlfriend part. I mean, I'm an English major. major. Alliteration is my lifeblood. So, anyway, we thought that we would get together and have a chat, since it's the two of us, and since my column is essentially about him. And uh, the topic of conversation for today is games that have moved us. By which I mean mostly games that have moved him and me by extension. I'm a sensitive boy. It's really true. Anyway, um, so I figured we, I, I'd let Mike start, and you can tell us about a game in your experience as a gamer that has moved you, and we can go from there, because I am sure I will have a lot of comments to make as the long-suffering girlfriend. Well, I, I think the the best one to start off with is Grand Theft Auto 4, which, as many of you may remember, was the subject of one of my uh, all-time Gamer Girlfriend classic columns. Yeah, where I basically spent the entire week playing it and ignoring her, and also telling her about every single little thing that I did in the game. Every fucking little thing. To the point where she was so fed up, the next time she was, uh, she was going to talk to me, she was going to tell me off. Uh, but right before I called her, I beat the game, and the ending was very sad. And so I called her up, and, you know, like, baby? Huh? I just beat GTA 4. Uh huh. The ending was really sad. You want to talk about it? Yes. And the thing is. Most of you who have read my column have heard this story. It's a good story. I admit it. I like telling it. But the thing you have to understand is, this is not atypical. This is a regular part of our relationship. Every time he sees something that makes him a little sniffly, whether it's a video game, or a television show, or a movie, or even a comic strip, I get the baby a lot. I like hugs. He does like hugs. Well, it's just, I don't know, video games have kind of been one of my main media inputs for my entire life, and I, I don't see it any differently as you would, as most people would see, like, a book or a movie. I mean, I mean, you talk to the women who cried at Titanic. Um, I was one of them. Right. I thought it was funny as hell, by the way. Um, I only cried at the end. See, I laughed at the end. <laughs> but, I digress. Um, you know, I, I play a game like, well, Bioshock. Where I love being the good guy. I, I, I can't help it. So I went through and I saved all the little sisters. And then at the end, there's this wonderful ending where basically all this, you know, the love comes back to you. And it, it gets me misty every time I see it. And I won't go into Bioshock 2 because many of you haven't played it yet. But 
there's a similar feeling at the end. I mean, and just going through the game where you are a big daddy and you get to adopt all these little sisters, and it's just it's it evokes something paternal in me. And it, honestly, it's led to discussions lately, like like Mandy, do you think I'd be a good dad? I mean, maybe someday. I don't know just yet, but I think I'd be a good dad. Well, thank you. Um, but yeah, they they get to me, and I guess maybe maybe it's the interactive aspect of it. Especially, I find I get into the characters that don't speak. Um, That's interesting. Well, I, I think they provide a better sort of a better character for me to project myself on, because I, I don't have a this character speaking a written script that isn't necessarily the things I would say. So, in games like, like games like Bioshock, where you you kind of have this blank character, it's easier for me to place myself upon him. Uh, in games like Earthbound and Chrono Trigger, where you have a protagonist that doesn't speak, it's easier for me to think that their thoughts are similar to mine because I don't have that. Um, I, I don't have a a script for them that's different from what I would necessarily say. Also, in games like. Um, Mass Effect and a lot of the the Black Isle games like Fallout, the original Fallouts, where you have a wide range of things to say. They really allow me to kind of, they, well, they allow me to role play better. So I really get, I really tend to get absorbed into those games. And so, and it's not just crying and crying when I uh, when I beat Mass Effect and Mass Effect Two. You know, I love to play the good guys in those games. And the ending, the, the ending pays out. Um, and uh, it just it, it makes me feel like such it gives me this great little high inside where like, wow, everything turned out right, okay, and I got to be a good guy. It's even better in Mass Effect 2 when every every little thing from the if you import your save game, every little thing you did in the first game comes back in some small way, whether it be like an email with from someone checking you checking in with you, uh, that you saved. You know, it's like, Oh sweet, that guy's okay and he's doing great. And it's all because of me. It's just it's this lovely little high I get. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the same thing I get from books and movies, where it's like, oh, I'm glad this character's okay. Oh, I'm glad, you know, it worked out for these two people. It's, I have ownership of what's happening. And it's like, you know, I did that. Now I know I didn't really, really do that because it's a video game. But there's still that feeling that I can be proud of this. So... That's not all there is to it, though. Um, because there's the part of the video games where you like to, you know, roleplay and, and be the character and take ownership of your actions. There's also the, the games where something that happens um, outside of yourself. It happens to a character. It happens in the game. It's not you, but it's something that you relate to very strongly. Um, often things having to relate, relating to or having to do with family. Yeah, that's or, true. You know, anything that reminds you of me. I mean, that's true. <laughs> there have been a lot of games where something, for some reason or another, has reminded you of me, and I get, I get the the the, the puppy eyes. You know. I'm trying to think of a good example here. Um, well, I mean, going back to Grand Theft Auto, that was one of the reasons that yeah, it made yeah. you so sad was because the in, in your version of the game, the the ending you chose, you ended up your character ended up losing a woman that he really cared about. Yeah, and that sort of thing is you are very susceptible to that sort of thing. It's true. Anything where you look at a you know a, a girl and and see my face, it. Yeah. Yeah. And. Yeah, when they, when there's a, a a character that really cares about someone else, and then they lose them, it's God. I need to run to you to a, run to you for a hug. Yeah, of course, it's also the same with like pets and stuff like that. Um, you know, I have to run to the pets and give them a hug. Wasn't there what game was it where somebody made you kill a kitten? I think you're thinking of the movie Drag Me to Hell. Oh, that's why I won't see that movie because she had, she kills her kitten. Yeah. Okay. Never mind then. But yeah. You would need hugs after that one. Uh, oh yeah, well, I, that's the reason I refuse to see that movie. I actually, uh, I have a friend named John who I'm not sure if he's seen it or not, but heard about that scene, and so he refuses to watch it anymore. It's just it sours the whole thing for us. I mean, there's there's horror movies, and you know I can watch people get killed for hours because 
Eh. But you and you kill an innocent animal, I am done with you. Oh my god. Um but but getting back to video games, uh, I'd like to turn the tables on you actually. And I'd like to bring up Valkyria Chronicles for the PS3. Um, for those of you who haven't played it, Valkyria Chronicles is this uh, sort of blend of like third-person shooter tactics game that's wonderful. Uh, and not only is the the gameplay really great, it has a decent story. Um, for more than decent, it, it's it's more really well written. Yeah, and I was playing the game. Um, and Vanji was usually in the room. I mean, she sometimes she won't be in the room while I'm playing video games. Other times she will be. Um, but she was. Th- th- this game wasn't so violent that you know she had to excuse herself. And so I got about halfway through the game, and one of the main characters was suddenly killed. And the thing about these characters, they they ha- they aren't really stereotypes of you know your typical army soldiers. They're it, it takes place in a country that's been invaded, and it's basically. It's the, it's the equivalent of Switzerland, I think. Yeah, yeah, in the in the game world, it's equivalent of Switzerland, and the people there are you know rise up to defend the, their their land. And one of the main characters is killed halfway through the game, um, rather suddenly, um, as people are at war. Um, and it was a very surprising plot twist because usually in uh, I think it's a Japanese RPG that that usually doesn't happen without a lot of foreshadowing or uh, sort of. Uh, a ghost coming back or something like that. But this just happened, and then there was this whole really beautiful kind of funeral sequence, and one of the characters sang this this really beautiful song. And, um, you know, the game kind of changed its tone from that point. And that, that's really basically what I, I remember when that gunshot happened, Vanji just looked up and she's like, They killed that girl? They killed that girl? Why? Why did they kill that girl? And, um, yeah, from that point on, I couldn't play the game without her, or else Vanjie would get very, very upset with me. Um, and it got to the ending, and you, you see these uh, some of the characters in the game, or how the characters in the game kind of move on after the war is over, and there's a, a daughter born, and that's named after the character who died. And, who, and she's this the cutest little girl ever. Yeah, yeah, Vanjie just kind of melted uh, when she saw this little little girl, and I mean, I think you needed hugs after that too. Maybe. Uh, so it, it's not just it's not just me. It rubs off on you too. And I know the other. We actually have arguments about who the cutest little video game girl is. It's between that one in Valkyria Chronicles, and although we don't like to discuss it that often, uh, the game that is, uh, Trucy from. Um, Apollo Justice. Yeah, Ace Attorney, Apollo Justice. And not just Trucy. Little Trucy. Yes, there's a flashback sequence. Uh, to, to give some background, Trucy is a Phoenix Wright's daughter. There's a flashback with her as a small child. And she is just adorable with her little hat and her little can-do attitude. And, you know, we actually have this argument right uh, rather often, it never gets resolved because they're just both so adorable. Um, but I mean, you you tend to get you tend to get um, uh, misty or you know moved by I think strong women in video games. That is true. And and by the mother daughter bond or by or just the bond of a daughter to a parent. Um, that is true. Yeah. So why do you think that is? Well, spotlight, spotlight, spotlight. Well, you're moved by the things that speak to where you are, um, and the experiences that you've had. Uh, a video game, no matter how pretty, will ring hollow if it's something that doesn't speak to you and your experiences. I mean, this is not a video game, this is actually a movie, but I feel it illustrates the point well. When I was in college, I, be- I was absolutely enamored of the movie Garden State. I thought it was the most wonderful movie ever. And recently, and by recently, I mean maybe a couple years ago, I rewatched it. And I was watching it going in knowing that this is a movie I love. This is a movie that speaks to everything I am about. And watching it again, just nothing. 
it didn't resonate anymore. And the reason for that was that, in terms of that movie, that is very much a movie about coming of age and being in that in-between place between leaving home and making your own home. And while I was in that in-between place, it made sense to me. Once I moved into a space where I had my own home and I was establishing my own life, and I'm in the process of making my own family, suddenly that, that movie doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. Now, that's an interesting example because it, there's that sense of transience that it meant something once and doesn't anymore. There are other things that speak to themes that are so present that they never go away. Um, that's why things that are about first loves or loss or the love between a parent and a child, those are things that there's a reason they keep going back to them. They mean something to us. They, and even, you know, as you grow older, it still means something to you. And so to revisit the topic of video games, when I see something that is beautiful and well-written, that, by the way, is key. It has to be well-written. And also touches upon that, that thing that is an emotional trigger for me, then yeah. I get misty. It happens. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's it, it's perfectly perfectly human. Now, now what 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 ticks me off is the people who you know. I try to describe these things to, and this is one of the reasons I love Vanjie. Um, some people are dismissive of it. Vanjie is not. Um, so that's actually one of the reasons we get along. Now you know some people's like, oh, you're getting you're getting uh, weepy over a video game. It's like, well. Yeah, I mean, again, going to the movie comparison, there are some movies that get you emotional. There's there's movies that resonate with you. And there's also movies that you go to, and it's, for me, you know, it's bad horror movies or, you know, action movies that are just kind of over the top and silly. And, yeah, I'm not going to feel a really deep personal connection to them, but I enjoy them. Um, it's like, I'm not going to feel a really deep personal connection to most Mario games. Um, but I enjoy the hell out of them. But then, you know, occasionally a movie or game comes along that just resonates me with me. And, um, I think, I think the granddaddy of them all for me is Earthbound. Um, I can, I, I typically have a, a save at the end of the game, just so I can go through and see the ending every so often. And I, I showed it to Vanjie. And I thought, okay, I can do this. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry at the ending. I'm just going to show it to Vanjie, because it's a really good ending, and I wanted to hear some of the music all along the way. And so I go through, and I beat the game, and the nice thing about the ending is you can basically go all around the world and talk to everybody. Um, and, you know, they... they congratulate you, and you can see how things have worked out with people. Then, the thing that really, really gets me is that the credits roll. And behind the credits, they do a slideshow of these photos that were taken by this guy who basically, when you get to a certain point, in the, to certain areas, he'll like pop in and he'll take a photograph of you and your party and everyone who's around. And it's just such... It, the, the music is wonderful, too, because it's the... Um, the soundstone melody that you, you are collecting throughout the game, which is one of those things that, you know, I can hear it, and I'm just like a mile, uh, I can hear this the melody, this, this soundstone melody, and I'm suddenly a thousand miles away in my own head. Um, but they, they play that music, and they play this slideshow, and near the end, there's even like a little, uh, a little voice that says, I'll miss you. And... God, when that voice comes on, I just lose it. Like, I, I'm sniffling. It's like, oh my god. I love everyone in this game, and I'm so glad I was able to help them. And, I mean, even before that, with the, the last boss, you you beat by, basically, you can't beat him by beating him up. You have to basically ask other people for help, and everyone you've helped, you know, basically comes together to send their, you know, goodwill towards you to kind of banish this evil guy. And I can't, it's like, everybody's helping me. It's like, ah, it's the most emotionally 
wonderful response I've ever had to a game, and it's just <sighs> there is a reason that um that I made my parents buy me this game as a child. Like this was the first game I ever truly loved, and like when we had to take it back to Blockbuster, I felt empty inside. Um, and it's because of that, and I you know I. I'll still play it to this day and have the same response, and which reminds me, Paul, you are not allowed to play Earthbound without me anymore. OMG, WTF, Horsey Bird. So, yeah. But that's the granddaddy for me. And I, you know, I think it combines everything you've said that you've noticed that strikes me. The, the family angle. Um, you are really a sucker for the family angle. I really am a sucker for the family angle. Friendship and family, and uh, just being able to, you know, help other people with things that get to me. Heck, it's why even Pokemon resonates with me slightly, because it's all about friendship. It really is. Uh, friendship and making small monsters fight for you. But, you know, they do it because they're your friends. So, I guess, yeah, you know, it's just what gets to me is the people. What gets me is the people who insist you can't have an emotional response or that you're less of a person for having an emotional response to a game. Yeah, I, I find that mostly the people who say that are the people who haven't played games. Yeah, yeah. Because the fair. truth of the matter is, if you think about it logically, why wouldn't it? Some of these games have writing that is as good, if not better, than things you find in the movies, and you don't just spend two hours watching the damn thing. You spend 50-plus hours on some of them being the game, mm. you know, so you're much more invested in, you know, in the characters and in the story, even even in watching the movie. Yeah. For instance, um, Uncharted 2 versus, or even the first Uncharted, versus Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Dear God. Yeah. Uncharted was the, was the movie that Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull should have been. Yeah, yeah. And that's saying something. And then Uncharted 2 was... You know, the story was was just as good as the first one. Um, wait, do you not agree, or...? No, I do. Okay. Um, and then... I'm just remembering the ending. Oh, yes. It was sunny, and you were unconscious. It was raining, and you were bawling. Yeah, they had this, and they had this wonderful little uh, tete-a-tete with the main character and the main girl that's actually kind of reminiscent of Firefly or something like that. And But that's still better writing than what, than what was in the latest Indiana Jones. I mean, come on. Their treasure was knowledge. Oh, Shia LaBeouf and the monkeys. Knowledge. Shia LaBeouf and the monkeys. Knowledge was their treasure. Oh, aliens still belong in Indiana Jones, and they weren't in Uncharted. They they look they looked for El Dorado. They found it. It was an ancient cursed artifact, just like it goddamn should have been. But anyway, ancient unspeakable evil. Cool aliens. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Again. We're using this as a platform or a soapbox to kind of pontificate on things we like and hate. But, yeah, maybe maybe we'll see things kind of get turned around if and when video games are more accepted into mainstream media. Uh, I, I, I found myself on occasion trying to explain to people why video games are enjoyable, why they're meaningful why they are, in some cases, forms of art, and I hear myself. And I put myself in the place of the skeptical listener, and I know exactly why I wouldn't have believed myself before, but now that I've played these games, I see, you know, that there's there's merit there. And I will never be such a convert that, that I can play all games, or even all good games. I mean, I, I'm sure there are a lot of very good first-person shooters that I wouldn't touch with a ten-foot pole, but... That's okay. There are games that I can enjoy. And that's one thing I actually try to impart to the people I talk to is that I'm not I'm not a hardcore gamer. I'm really not. But there are games that I can enjoy. There are games that I think other people who are like me could enjoy. And yes, I do think that there are games that are genuinely moving. You know? I'm trying to think about some of the games that have done it for me over the years and, you know, Kingdom Hearts, mm -hmm. that that definitely has even the the Roxas one that just came out. That oh three fifty eight over two. Yeah, that got me in the end. Yeah, yeah. Also, there's that song that they keep playing that makes me want to burst into tears every time it comes on, and I don't know why. It's just a song, but it does. Which one? Sanctuary. 
Oh God, Sanctuary. Yeah, right? Right? God, it's such a great song! Phoenix Ryan at all? Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, you, you, well, you certainly certainly get uh, involved with the characters. Oh, yeah. And there, there are moments. Um, we talked about Valkyria Chronicles. Yeah. Yeah, there are games I've played that have moved me. There are games I've watched you play. I'm trying to kind yeah. of separate them in my head. Yeah, I mean, when it, when with regards to Bioshock and Bioshock 2, you know, you, you made it a point to insist that I call you over for the ending. Well, yeah. So you could watch it. Well, because I saw the Bioshock 1 ending, and that was short, but very special. And it's hard to explain, because I can't give it away, goddamn you listeners out there who haven't played it yet, and I can't spoil it. <laughs> Play the game, or Banji will hurt you. Yes. Um. But it was short, and it was beautiful, and it was simple. And I don't think it pulled any cheap shots, because cheap shots are the death knell of a game that tries to be moving. You know. Yeah. Fallout 3, original ending. Bring on the children! So... But, you know, it was was one of those instances where your choice to do a good thing in the game came back to you. And you were able to see, very briefly, and through some, you know, very very brief clips that were very representative of, of the larger picture, you were able to see how the people you helped not only went on to live wonderful lives, but also, in the end, came back to you, to be with you when you needed them. You know, it just, it was beautiful. And so, yes, when he was playing Bioshock 2, yes, I did want to see the ending, because... Okay, I'm totally thinking about the end of Bioshock again, and it's making me a little misty. And this is our relationship, in a nutshell. I need a hug. Okay. Well, hold on, we should end the podcast, and then I'll give you a hug. I need hugs now. Okay. Well, I guess this is a good place to end the podcast, then. We're hugging. Yes. Okay. And and our dog is getting in on the hug. There's a big group hug going on right now. Yep. Anyway, uh, I've been Mike Ridgeway. I'm Vanjie Rich, a.k.a. Gamer Girlfriend. And this has been the Game Cola Podcast and Gamer Girlfriend. In stereo! Oh, oh, oh. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ta-ta. And now, segment two. Which uh, is is kind of related to segment one, if you think about it, because if you noticed, in segment one, they did talk a little about Phoenix Wright. But now, we're going to talk a lot about Phoenix Wright in our discussion of Case 1-4. Turnabout goodbyes. Hello everybody, this is Michael and Paul. That's Michael Gray and Paul Franzen, and today we are talking about case number four of Phoenix Wright. That's case one four for those of you who use that numbering system. And it's Turnabout Goodbyes is the name of the case. It's the dramatic DL6 case where Phoenix goes up against Manfred von Karma, and Phoenix has to defend his rival, Miles Edgeworth, in court. Miles is accused of murdering the defense attorney from a case which took place 15 years ago. The case in which his father was killed, and Miles actually was a witness in that case. So it's a very dramatic situation, and as the uh, case progresses and Phoenix learns more about what happened, everything just sort of all comes together beautifully. We find out what happens with... um Edgeworth, when he was a child, we found out what happened to Maya's mother. We find out why Phoenix decided to become a lawyer. And why Edgeworth decided to become a lawyer. Yes. And we learned about how uh, Edgeworth, Phoenix, and Larry Butts were all BFFs in grade school. Sort of. They are sort of BFFs, aren't they? Uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure, but we can get into that when we uh, talk about their relationship, because that's one of my bullet points here. Ooh. See, yeah. this time we have actually prepared a list of bullet points. That way we can stay on topic. It's, it's funny that you say that now because uh, you, you guys at home, you're just uh, listening to the beginning of this segment, but Michael and I have actually been talking for 40 minutes at this point, trying to get started. Yes, we've how been... good we are at staying on topic. Case number four. Case number four. Okay, what, are, what bullet points do we have? Have we finished our introduction well enough? I, I, I think so. I think that was a, a very solid introduction. I'd give it a 7 out of 10. Cool. Cool. 7 out of 10. Great. Great. That's not bad. Okay. Then our first topic is the relationship between Edgeworth and Gumshoe. 
Are they just friends, or are they something more? They're just friends. Okay, the next time. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. We're not going to let it pass by that quickly, Mr. Franzen. That, was, that wasn't even what I was referring to when I wrote that bullet point. I was referring to what Gumshoe had to say in this case when he was talking about how uh, he and Edgeworth have this strong mutual relationship and how, uh, how he said that Edgeworth trusts in Gumshoe to always get the right man. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because Gumshoe always seems to never get the right man. It's true. See, when I was playing the game, I was... Or when I was actually, when I was watching Michael's videos of the game, which is what I, I played the game, but I was watching them to prep for this podcast. Anyway, when I was watching those videos, I don't know, for some reason I interpreted that as not Gumshoe putting words in, in Edgeworth's mouth, but him actually saying how Edgeworth really feels, that Edgeworth actually does have a great deal of trust in Gumshoe. Do you think there's merit to that, or do you think I'm just very strange for getting that impression and I read the game wrong? I think there's a little bit of merit to that. I'm not sure, because, no, I think Edgeworth likes Gumshoe. When Gumshoe gets fired, Edgeworth gets him rehired. So he doesn't, he can't think that Gumshoe is that incompetent then. Yeah. Yeah, see, I mean, they wouldn't keep working together. But he doesn't wholly think that Gumshoe is, like, the best detective ever. Right, I mean, we, we've only seen a fraction of the cases that they've worked on together through the Phoenix Wright games. So we, we don't really know for sure if... These are just instances of Gumshoe performing really poorly, or if Gumshoe just always gets the wrong man. I mean, it's possible that Gumshoe, these four cases aside, always totally rocks at getting the right uh, culprit. That's not the case. It just so happens that in these cases he doesn't. That's so not true. In the new Miles Edgeworth game, <laughs> where with Miles Edgeworth teams up with Detective Gumshoe for a number of cases, and Gumshoe is his usu- his usual lovable self. Working with uh, Edgeworth. But Edgeworth does have a tendency, as does Phoenix, to make snide remarks about his helper. Phoenix sometimes makes snide remarks about Maya, and Edgeworth has a tendency to make snide remarks about Gumshoe. Maybe it's just because... And Gumshoe just takes it. But his... Gumshoe doesn't try to find another job. He he takes all of this criticism from Edgeworth and, and just shrugs it off, I guess. Maybe because he knows it's legit. Yeah. Well, it's important to notice that apparently the only person on the police force who is supporting Edgeworth through this whole thing is Detective Gumshoe. That's true. Well, that would explain then later why they continue to work together, because Edgeworth feels a debt of gratitude towards Gumshoe for that. He also feels a debt of gratitude towards Maya, for uh, Maya, when Maya helps out in this case. That's true. Yeah, I guess uh, in in this case really uh, solidifies all of their friendships with one another. I mean, they definitely, like, Edgeworth and and uh, Phoenix had a real rival relationship up until this point, but they really, they become BFFs again in this case. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, I, I mean, I know we're not supposed to talk about shipping, but as long as we're on the topic <laughs> of solidifying... <laughs> what ship are you about to talk about? <laughs> as long as we're on the concept of solidifying relationships, I need to talk about the uh, various relationships... Because in the earlier Phoenix Wright podcast, I was claiming that it was the game was definitely going for a Phoenix-Mia relationship. But that's totally wrong, as this case makes clear. The relationship this case goes for is definitely Phoenix-Edgeworth. I didn't get that impression. Phoenix is so in love with Edgeworth. He became a lawyer because he's obsessed with seeing Edgeworth again. He always, he's always making all these statements about how he has these... He just has a feeling inside about Edgeworth, and that's why he has to help him. It's because they used to be such good friends when they were little. And in fact, this, this ties into our second bullet point right now. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's launch into that. The relationship, as we uh, mentioned earlier, between Edgeworth, Phoenix, and Larry. They were all friends in the fifth grade together. And one moment specifically, which was traumatic in Phoenix's life, is when he was accused of stealing $44 from Edgeworth. Everybody thought he was guilty, but Edgeworth, because he's such a lawyerly person, demanded on holding a trial and finding out the truth, rather than, you know, being a jerk and insisting that Phoenix give him his $44 back. Of course, they never actually found out the truth at this point. 
all they were able to prove was that there was no solid evidence against Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Okay. So later, that, later in the game, we find out who the true culprit is, but we can talk about that in a little bit. So that's why uh, Phoenix decided to become a lawyer. He was inspired by Edgeworth saving his life, which I think is kind of a dramatic overstatement of the situation that, you know, kids in fifth grade were just upset with him for stealing oh, $44. They were, they were a bunch of jerks, though. Did, did you, didn't you see that? Like, they were all saying how they refused to play with him anymore. Even the teacher was screaming at him. I would have felt upset, too. I definitely would have felt upset. The only person who saved him was his two, his two friends kind of saved him. Larry sort of came to Phoenix's aid. But only, only after Edgeworth did. Yeah. It was kind of a, a, a me too kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. Phoenix didn't do it. Larry. Which is kind of strange, actually. That, uh, that Larry would want to try to, to get someone off, and, and I, I would think that Larry would want to try to find someone guilty in this instance. Because, as it's revealed, Larry is the culprit? Yes. At the very, very end of this case, uh, what is it, Larry slips Edgeworth an envelope with $44 in it, I believe? Yeah. He specifically says it. It's like, yay. It's like, here's the $44, and Phoenix is like, this was all your fault, Larry? Really? And Edgeworth is like, whoa. The Edgeworth, who can barely remember the thing, he's like, wait, yeah. you've been harping on that, that one little that thing that happened one day at school for the past 15 years? What's wrong with you, Phoenix? And then Phoenix says, I hate you both. Yeah, he says something like, I need new friends. And then he turns to Maya. Who immediately leaves. No, it's, it's, see, this is what I mean about this case, totally changing relationships, is because it's clearly Maya and Larry who are the couple that is destined what? to be. What are you talking about? When Larry first meets Maya, the stars just start falling from the heavens. Uh, that, that's like that with Larry and every female character in the game. True. Not just Maya. He would probably get with all that. <laughs> oh. That's my new shit. <laughs> ow, Paul, ow. But anyway, shortly after the that incident with uh, Edgeworth moves away as a result of the DL6 incident. And he and Phoenix very, very much lose touch. I think uh, Phoenix was actually kind of stalking him for a little bit. I think even later they say that what further spurred Phoenix to become a lawyer was so he could find Edgeworth, because Edgeworth would have, would have to meet him in court, which mm -hmm. is really kind of creepy. That is really kind of creepy, and I'm very glad that they sort of fleshed it out in later games and gave him other reasons to want to be a lawyer. Yeah. But so it's not still, I chose my career path because there's this one guy I really, geez, maybe they, maybe that is the official ship of this game. That's, wow. that's what I'm saying. It's because of statements like that, which you can totally see homosexual undertones between Phoenix and Edgeworth. Yeah, I, I can't really argue against that uh, point in particular. So that's why Phoenix decided to become a lawyer. Because he's in love with Edgeworth. Yeah, it kind of seems that way. And it's convenient that we just talked about that because that was bullet point number three. Why Phoenix and Edgeworth decided to become lawyers. Well, no, so, why did Edgeworth decide to become a lawyer? That's something sorry, different. I, I, I meant to transition more smoothly into that. Edgeworth, Edgeworth wanted to become a lawyer because his dad was a lawyer. Yes, and that, that was why he was so quick to jump to Phoenix's, or one of the reasons he was so quick to jump to Phoenix's defense was that, I mean, he was already had a strong desire to become a lawyer, so he was really just kind of showing off his mad skills in that respect. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting because after his father is killed, he decides to become a prosecutor rather than a defense attorney like his father. Right. He's, he's so scarred by the incident because he, he can't believe that defense attorneys, you know, go to such lengths to defend people who are obviously guilty. And that's not something. He wants to put guilt, guilty people behind bars. He doesn't want to help defend them. Yeah. Yeah. He's more concerned with um, punishing criminals rather than saving yes. people. And that's why he needs somebody like Phoenix, who is concerned with saving other people, to save him from himself. Oh, oh, oh. I don't think we're going to be able to talk the deepness of that thought just there. Let's stop the podcast now. Let's move on to bullet point number four. This is, this is something I, I noticed when uh, I was watching your videos. Uh, you, you brought this up fairly frequently. Um, mm -hmm. Why was Misty Faye discredited uh, in the D after the DL6 incident as being a fraud? 
because, uh, as far as anyone can tell, the person that she said murdered uh, Mr. Edgeworth actually did murder Mr. Edgeworth. I think I should explain a little bit um, yeah, more please, for the people please, who please do. weren't there. The murder took place in an elevator. There was an earthquake and the elevator was stalled, so three people were in the elevator. The victim, Miles. Miles Edgeworth, you know, little Kitty Edgeworth. He was there with his father, who's the victim, and the janitor, Yanni Yogi, I believe his name is. Yeah. There were two shots fired, and Edgeworth's father was dead. And Misty Fay indicated the janitor as the murderer. And she did that by channeling Mr. Edgeworth, Gregory Edgeworth. Like, Greg, Greg Edgeworth showed up, and he said, yeah, it was Yanni Yogi. He did it. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the course of that trial, um... I mean, they only found him not guilty by virtue of insanity. Yeah. Which indicates that he actually was the person who did it. But following that case, uh, everyone said Misty Fay was a, a total fraud, that she was completely making everything up. And, and why? Why does that happen? And she was exiled for, uh, well, yes. forever, yes. pretty much. the last time she was seen. The last time she sees her two young daughters, Maya, age two, and Mia, age, age 12. Which is really, really tragic that Maya didn't grow up with any parents. Because her mother was exiled for what appears to be a really stupid reason. Because she's clearly not a fraud. Yeah, she clearly uh, did uh, channel Gregory Edgeworth, and they did implicate the person who actually committed the murder. Is this a storyline flaw? Is this a flaw from the people who developed the game? Or is this a flaw of the characters of the game, of the universe of the game. I think it's a storyline flaw, because honestly, the way I described the murder just now, do you really think they need to do, they really need to have a spirit channeling in order to figure out which of the three people in the elevator is the actual murder, actual murderer? Although it does turn out that that person wasn't the actual murderer. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Which kind of makes things slightly complicated, but for all intents and purposes, that person did do the murder, and more importantly, I mean, this is what actually matters, is that she actually did channel Gregory Edgeworth, and they implicated the person that everyone thought did it. And that person was later, uh, the court system found this person guilty, so why should they think that Misty Faye is a fraud? It, it's unfair, and I feel bad for the Faye family. This is why they need to make Mia Fey Ace Attorney, because we need to learn more about Maya and Mia and their situation growing up. Because I want to know what happened to poor two-year-old Maya. Well, it would be nice, because maybe they could explore the, the exiling incident a little uh, more in depth and uh, explain why this actually makes sense in terms of the game's storyline, beyond just we wanted to do it because it's very dramatic and interesting. Yeah, they semi-reference it in the third game, but not really. Right. That's not a satisfactory recap of what happened to their mother at all. But, you know, I guess they kept it in the story because it ties in Maya to this whole situation. And everybody, as we said earlier, everybody gets That's tied so into the story. Everybody is somehow involved with each other, which is one of the very nice things about the Phoenix Wright series is that they try to connect all the various cases in the big dramatic finale case. Why was Misty Faye discredited? Storyline purposes. Storyline purposes, I think, yes. Which is kind of a bummer uh, and kind of disappointing. So let's move on to a more interesting, uh, a more upbeat topic. Yes. Larry? Larry and Maya's beautiful relationship. Didn't we already Larry and Old Bag? That's what we decided. No, I thought it was Larry in April, May. She seems like the girl that he would totally yeah. go for. She is absolutely his type. Except she's not a model. They talk about how, uh, what was he dating, like a, a model or something in this case? Yeah, he usually tries to go after models. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there, was a, there was a whole uh, minor storyline about that in this case, actually. It's, it's more like a running joke, is that Larry is yeah. horrible with women, and he's always dating models, and... It what never works out. I don't know how that happens. He doesn't seem like the sort of guy that a model would go for. Slash, slash anyone. Except for Maya. No, <laughs> including Maya. Including Maya. I don't think Maya would really go for 
any type of guy, to be quite honest. Yeah, ex except Phoenix, of course. I don't really think that she would be, like... I wouldn't say Phoenix is her type. If she's going to go for Phoenix, it's because they have history and emotional connection, and not because so, he's the kind of guy five. she's interested in. Bullet point number five. Mm-hmm. What's up with the judge? Why does he always side with the prosecutor? Why does he always think immediately that the defendant is guilty? I think in this case it's because the prosecutor is Manfred von Karma, the famous prosecutor who has never lost a case in 40 years. That's Mr. fair. Mr. von Karma has presence, which is something Phoenix doesn't have. And Phoenix is still kind of a rookie at this point in, the, in his career also. He's kind of a rookie throughout the entire series. <laughs> That's fair. He breaks into sweat an awful lot. Nervous really sweats. So much the ace attorney that the that the game says he is. I mean, uh, he's an ace attorney in that he's, he's. I mean, he always he wins in the end, but mm -hmm. he always kind of stumbles into his victories and does it with a great deal of help from others. Well, to be fair, he needs the help in this particular case because Manfred von Karma has basically fixed the trial, mm -hmm. and that's why I think the judge goes along with him is because the trial is kind of fixed in his favor. Yeah. He basically sure, told and, the witnesses... And Manfred definitely has a tendency to kind of steamroller over uh, the judge in this case. He just kind of yells at the judge, saying, Okay, come on, bang your gavel down. Guilty, guilty, it's over. We're finished. Yeah, and he makes dramatic proclamations like, Three minutes, judge, trial uh, over. And then when Phoenix extends the trial, Manfred goes, Ah, it's three minutes! What's going on here? Do you think the judge is a bad judge? I'm going to go with what Phoenix says in case 2-1, which is that the judge is easily confused, but in the end he always makes the right verdict. He always makes the right decision. Yeah, I mean, but that's after he's already made six other decisions that were wrong. <laughs> and that, that, that were only overturned by the, by the efforts of Phoenix. I just said at the very end he has no choice but to make the right decision because there's clearly no other decision that could be made. Yeah. Um, until that, that point, his opinion is very malleable. I think it's just because Phoenix doesn't try to take advantage of the judge, the judge's easy confusability. That's true. If Phoenix totally tried to take advantage of that, it things would probably work better for him. Because if so the judge is easily manipulated, that, that, that means he can be manipulated by both sides, right? So that means then that the trials end up being not a case of who is innocent and who is guilty, and it's, it's more of a terms of which uh, lawyer is more assertive in dominating the judge. Which tells so, me that he's a very bad judge. Sometimes the witnesses dominate the judge, though, too. I guess the judge is just along for the ride. He's not really in control of anything. Besides handing up, okay. He's, he's, more, he's more of an arbiter than a judge. So I think we've determined that the judge is a horrible, horrible judge, but he's a nice person. Not quite qualified for his job, it seems. Yeah, he's <laughs> not the smartest person, but he's a nice guy, so we put up with him. Next bullet point. Why, why did Von Karma mentor Edgeworth when uh, Von Karma clearly had such a big grudge against Edgeworth's father uh, for, for giving him his one black mark. Why do you think Von Karma agreed to mentor Edgeworth? Uh, they, they never really went too far into this relationship. They only, they only said, yeah, yeah, he was Edgeworth's mentor, but they never really talked about what that entailed or you know whether Edgeworth worked for his law firm or anything like that. But That is a good question, and the new Miles Edgeworth game, uh, spoiler alert... Spoiler alert? I'm going to close my ears. Kind of also doesn't go too far into that. You can yeah, uncover I, your ears. I, 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 I feel like there should be a storyline reason, but I've, I've just always wondered why Von Karma would have done that. Yeah, mentor the son of his rival. Is it just keep your enemies close? I mean, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? Maybe he was trying to take even greater revenge against Gregory Edgeworth by manip manipulating his son and uh, and and molding him in his own image. It's like in The Lion King, where Scar tries to mold Simba in his own image. Yes. But fails. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's what he's going for then. He's trying to uh, be like a surrogate father to Edgeworth, 
to further destroy Gregory Edgeworth's memory, his living memory, by annihilating all traces of Gregory Edgeworth in Miles Edgeworth. Mm-hmm. Boy, that, that's kind of depressing. This is depressing. Gosh. Yeah, okay. no, it's interesting. That sufficiently and answers my question. <laughs> I haven't finished the new Miles Edgeworth game. Manfred von Karma does appear, but it doesn't really go too far into it, from what I can tell so far. Besides, I mean, the Miles Edgeworth game doesn't really go too far into his relationship with Manfred von Karma, other than people mention Manfred von Karma is his mentor, and they use that as something they can hold against Edgeworth. Because because they're a bunch of jerks. Okay, so next next bullet point. Cross-examining a parrot. Yes, that's right. On the final day of trial, Manfred von Karma makes a joke, which is sort of out of character for him, I guess. It's, it's not really a straightforward joke, but he's like, what are you going to do now, Mr. Defense Attorney? Cross-examine the parrot? And Phoenix goes, yes, I will cross-examine the parrot. And Phoenix actually cross-examines a parrot in this case. And it works surprisingly well. Even though man, even though Manfred von Karma has prepped the witness, in this case the parrot, to not talk about DL6. The parrot's name is Polly, which is the name of Yanni Yogi's dead fiance. She died on December 26, and 1226 is the code to the safe in Yanni Yogi's little boatside shack. No, but I think it's interesting because when Maya says, have we forgotten anything, Polly? The parrot says, don't forget to talk about DL6. But in trial, when she says, have we forgotten to talk about anything, Polly? The parrot doesn't say anything. And Manfred von Karma gives this evil grin, like he retrained the parrot overnight, just in case the parrot would be summoned as a witness. I wonder, I, I, I didn't get that impression at all that, that he had prepped the parrot. There's one or two comments on my video which asks the question of why is it that this time in trial when Maya tries to get the parrot to talk about DL6, the parrot doesn't say anything. Because that would yeah, be I, the I, easiest... I accept that. Because that would be the easiest way to prove um, that the caretaker is Yanni Yogi is because his parrot knows what DL6 is. So you think uh, Von Karma was so so prepared for this trial that he had a talk with the parrot about this and retrained what the parrot says? Yeah, I think the game is maybe hinting at that, which seems ridiculous. But given the fact that he preps every other witness, I mean, the only uh, time... Except Larry. He didn't prep Larry. Larry the... was another surprise one. Yeah, the only times Phoenix actually, you know, has an opportunity to turn the trial his way is when an unprepped witness comes in, like Larry. Or when Lotta Hart makes a statement which was not part of her testimony. Right, I'm, I'm surprised no uh, defense attorneys have ever tried to use that strategy on Manfred before. Summon a surprise witness? That he doesn't know about. Yeah. I guess what he does in that case, and what he does in this case, is that he decides to go for evidence rather than witness testimony. He throws the, um, uh, he throws his hand with the evidence which he has also faked and prepped. Another joke statement that Manfred von Karma makes, I'm just going to mention this, besides the one about the parrot is... Actually, no, this is part of the parrot when Phoenix is cross-examining the parrot, and it's like, ah, the parrot's name is Polly. That's the name of Yanni Yogi's fiancé. Therefore, this parrot is Yanni Yogi's parrot. And Manfred von Karma's like, so what? My granddaughter, she has a dog named Phoenix. Does that mean she's your fiancé? She's only six years old, which is kind of a funny, funny joke. Manfred's not really a jokester type of person. Does that mean Francisca has a daughter? No, it's his, uh, Francisca's older sister. Oh. Oh, is this actually established in, in the canon? This is actually established, and because she's 17 at this point in the timeline, so... If she has a seven-year-old daughter, she must have given birth at age ten. Which is fairly unrealistic. Yeah. It's like one of the official character descriptions of Manfred somewhere says that he has two daughters, Francisca and an unnamed daughter. Someone decided to clear that up after the fact. Mm-hmm. 
No, but what also, what kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess bothered me about the parrot thing was that the parrot's name was Polly, and they automatically said, well, it must be Polly because his fiance was named Polly, but every parrot ever is named Polly. So I, I think if I were the developers, I would have given a more unique name to both the, the parrot and the fiance to make a, make it a little more obvious that the parrot was definitely named after the fiance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I always thought that was a little weird. Yes, but I guess now I want to rewatch the case and see because if we were we're introduced to the parrot like two hours before the parrot is cross-examined, right? Right. Yeah. So perhaps they didn't want to give anything away. I mean, just naming the parrot, just giving the parrot a different name, I don't think they would have given it away too much. Yeah, I mean, we didn't find out what Yanni Yogi's fiancé's name was yeah, I... until pretty much right at that moment where Phoenix cross-examines the parrot. Right. So, that's, I, that's what I think I would have done. Anyway, next point? Next point, okay. Um, this is something that I thought was kind of weird. If we assume that Edgeworth did, in fact, murder his father... 15 years ago, as uh, they talk about a little bit in this game, towards the end of this game. Edgeworth thinks he did, anyway. Yeah. Phoenix and they, and they put him on trial for it and everything. Phoenix proves him innocent, though, because he didn't kill his father. Edgeworth just has been having recurring nightmares for the past 15 years that maybe, in fact, he was the one who killed his father. What happened was that he did throw the gun away. He was trying to get the gun away from Yanni Yogi, and the gun misfired while in midair. Anyway, if, if you assume that Edgeworth was the killer, in fact, should he have been, been held liable for this? I mean, he was clearly only, he was, he was seven years old, and it was clearly, it clearly would have been an accident, so, why, why would it even be a thing? Why would he even put him on trial for something that he did when he was seven accidentally? Because it's been haunting him in his nightmares for the past 15 years, I think is the real reason why he wants to, um, discuss this, but, I would well, agree. I, mean, I don't I, think... I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I understand why he would want to get this off his chest and determine if he actually was a murderer or not, but from a legal standpoint... From a legal standpoint, and I think this ties back to what we said earlier about Misty Fay, this seems like something they put in to make it dramatic, but if you think about it from a legal standpoint, really not an issue. Well, here's, here's how I can kind of justify it. We uh, established earlier in the podcast that the judge is kind of a moron. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no one else, there's no other authority here allowing this case to go on but the judge. And since judge, uh, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, maybe he just didn't even think about that. He's like, okay, yeah, let's, let's have this trial right now. We better do it. And, even, and because Manfred von Karma insisted on having the trial. Because Manfred von Karma, this, that was the plan he made. He was going to get Edgeworth found innocent of the murder of Daryl Hammond, who's the person he's accused of murdering in this case, at the expense of thus proving the motive for Yanni Yogi in the uh, DL6 case, and thus Edgeworth would be sentenced for murder in the case 15 years ago. I, 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 would, I would argue that it does make sense in terms of the story if you assume that the judge just isn't a very good judge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that makes more sense than, I guess, than my explanation. But that's clearly Von Karma's plan. I, I, I certainly plan. prefer it to the developers just weren't thinking things through enough. Maybe it's, maybe it's because the legal system is different in Japan. Yeah, they, they do make a point of uh, explaining that in the, the beginning of this game. The legal system in the future in Japan is different than what we we would be accustomed to. Yes, well, I mean, because we have jury trials, but also in Japan, the number of guilty verdicts is really, really high percentage of guilty verdicts. Well, I mean, if you have people like Manfred von Karma, yeah. prosecutors, yeah. Yes, but I mean, like, real life, I don't know. They're, yeah. Oh, I know, I know, I know. I've heard there's something like 90%. Conviction rate. Anyway, I think I think under different circumstances, if they, for example, had more time because uh, the statute of limitations for uh, the murder of Edgeworth's father was running out that day, mm-hmm. so if they had more time to investigate the case, and if the judge wasn't the sole authority presiding over this case, someone probably would have spoke up and said, "Hey, Edgeworth was seven at the time, and it would would have been an accident, therefore." He's not guilty just by virtue of that. 
Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. Any other well, points I, I on the have, bullet? I have one more bullet point, unless you have anything else you want to talk about. I could talk about how it's really, really cool how Manfred von Karma just pulls out a taser and electrocutes Phoenix and Maya and steals that's, all their evidence. That's not cool. What's cool about that? I um I guess it's not that cool, but <laughs> you 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 like seeing Phoenix tased? Is that it? Don't tase me, bro. No, no I, I thought it was. I thought it was. It was very bold of Von Karma to do that. To I mean, he. I think I just like how on the Game Tol Game Cola YouTube channel, the picture of Von Karma with the taser was our official picture <laughs> for like a month because it was the greatest picture ever. And. Why didn't Phoenix, like, stop off at a Kinko's and make a copy of yeah. this crucial information? I, I I agree with you that that was kind of weird that Phoenix didn't do that. Or not, not smart on Phoenix's part. I guess that's because he's still a rookie lawyer. He doesn't know all the tricks of his trade. Then so. again, he probably wasn't expecting to run into Man... He wasn't expecting to meet Manfred von Karma at all, actually. Yeah. It would have been smart, though. Like... Just, just as a precautionary measure anyway. You know, you never know if you're going to spill coffee all over the original document or your dog is going to eat it or something. Yeah, you really think Phoenix should have made a uh, second copy of the yeah, crucial I mean, piece of evidence. Yeah, a standard thing that he would do is make copies of very important documents. The great thing about lawyers is they make lots of copies. One person is going to get that reference and that's all that counts. That one person isn't me. Anyway, Phoenix. Poor Phoenix getting tasered, but it's a good thing that... Never mind. Next no, bullet it's, point. It's, it's not a good thing at all. It's only a bad... I mean, I, it's cool from a storyline perspective. It's a good storyline perspective. It's very dramatic. It's very dramatic, and it's really heartbreaking to see Maya on the floor crying yes. about yes. how Absolutely. horrible she is and how she can't help Phoenix. She can't do anything right. She just sits there and cries, and your heart really goes out to her. I'm kind of sad again now. But it's a good build-up for why, at the end of the case, after the trial, Maya just leaves a note for Phoenix saying, Hey, Nick, I didn't want to see you in person, but I'm going home. I, I don't really belong here, so... You know, I don't want to... I didn't want to rain on your parade by saying that I'm going home, but I'm taking the 6 a.m. train out of town this Which morning. Which still pretty par parade rainy, I would say. Yeah, but she left it at his office, expecting him to find it, like, I don't know, maybe three days later. Yeah, that still is kind of parade rainy, yeah. but... I'm disappearing forever, Phoenix. Sorry. I guess I guess it seemed like a good idea to her at the time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was more she just couldn't bring herself to actually say something face to face, something like that face to face to Phoenix. Because I mean, in general, it's hard to say stuff like that to people in real life, and much easier to write it in a note. Mm -hmm. And specifically at this particular moment in time, after the uh, big dramatic situation with Edward. Right. But Phoenix goes to the train station and meets with Maya just before she leaves, and he gives her a piece of evidence to prove that she's not useless. I don't think he did when I was playing the game. He cheers her up. You know, she's I like... Mess, I, I always mess those things up. Yeah, she repeats she repeats the uh, whatever she says about how she was kind of worthless, and he presents the piece of evidence that she got, which actually ended up breaking the case and helping them win the trial. And he says, I couldn't have gotten this piece of evidence without you. Thank you, Maya. And then she agrees to stay and doesn't leave, and they get married. No, and then she says, thanks, Phoenix, you're nice, I'll be back someday, okay? And then she leaves for the train and doesn't talk to Phoenix at all for six months. It's very depressing, especially in terms of their, their developing relationship. The last bullet point I have is, this case is set around Christmas time. Why aren't there more video games about Christmas? Um, probably because most video games are made in Japan. That's fair. I, I would also say that it's because you could only sell them in December. Yeah, but that's usually when they sell a lot of games, too. That's true. 
Well, I, what I've actually seen is um, on the Xbox Live indie games, mm-hmm. and, um, I've seen a lot of Christmas-themed games on there for some reason. Uh, specifically, um, a person will have already made a different game, and then they'll, you know, throw Christmas in it and say it's the Christmas, Christmas edition of this game. I've seen that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now the Winter Olympics are going on, and we've seen at least seven games released that tie into winter games and winter sports. Yeah, some of them are pretty bad, too. Wasn't one of them, like, bobsledding game featuring the Jamaican team? Featuring the Jamaican bobsled team, yes. yes. Not not only trying to cash in on the Olympics, but trying to cash in on cool runnings. Yeah. It's pretty bad. The only Christmas-based game I know of is Santa Claus Saves the World, which is a game made in Europe, and it's not very good. Are you sure? Because it sounds awesome just by the title. That sounds like something I would play. It's generic platformer number 734, except it's pretty much worse. Yeah, there's no plot line whatsoever. I I wish there were more good games about Christmas. I guess Toe Jam and Earl kind of has a, a bit of a Christmas element to it, um, because a lot of the gameplay involves you collecting presents and opening them and doing stuff with them. And at, at various points, you can actually find Santa Claus and sneak up on him and steal all of his presents. <laughs> Santa Claus. So that has kind of a Christmas element. And because, you know, Santa Claus is a non-copyrighted character, you think people would use him more often. Yeah. Companies certainly take advantage of that in their Christmas advertising. Well, I guess, I mean, it takes a, I mean, obviously it takes a lot of money to make a, a, a real, like, AAA video game, so I guess they don't want to put that much effort into making a game that they can only sell around Christmas time anyway. Okay, so, final thoughts on Case 1-4. A fitting end to the game, I would say. I agree. It's Even good. It wasn't the last case on the DS release, it was... The last case on the Game Boy Advance release, and it was a, a good way to, to cap off the uh, all four of those cases. Mm-hmm. But no, definitely the most interesting case of the game, by far. And the last case usually is in these games. This has been Paul Franzen and Michael Gray. Thanks for listening. Yes. See, I was humming the theme song. That was good. And that's it for Game Cola Podcast number 22. In the first segment, you heard from Michael Ridgway and Vandy Rich, authors of, respectively, Quantum Geek and Gamer Girlfriend on GameCola.net. In the second segment, you heard from myself, Paul Franzen, the editor-in-chief of GameCola. And you heard from Michael Gray, author of Fabricated News, Inside the Guide, Oh, the Humanity, and many other GameCola columns. The song in the intro was Chowing Down on File Select, a remix of Earthbound's File Select song by Unlimited Lumpia, and the song you heard during the bridge was Maya's theme from the Ace Attorney series. The various segments were recorded by Mike, Vanjie, and Michael, and they were edited together by me, Paul. This podcast is hosted by GameCola.net, the only video game website on the entire internet. Thanks for listening.